Welcome to episode two of the Project Liberal podcast. My name is Josh Eckel. I'm the co-founder of Project Liberal here, joined as usual by my co-host, Jonathan Casey. Good morning. Hello, hello. Good morning. Uh, and today we have a really uh, awesome guest uh, representing an awesome organization. And we're going to talk about a very important and relevant issue. As many people know, uh, the Canadian wildfires have been in the news for the last two months. We've got at least many places in the north and the northeast seeing wildfire smoke coming over the border. Climate change is a top of mind for a lot of people in the context of this. And as many people know, um, many voices on the left are calling for an increased larger government, more spending, calling for degrowth, blaming capitalism for these climate problems. And uh, we don't think that's Bed Project Liberal that... That is the only voice that needs to be represented in the discussion. So we're really excited to have Chris uh, Barnard on the show, who, um, who represents an organization called the American Conservation Coalition. So Christopher is the Vice President of External Affairs at the American Conservation Coalition and the incoming president as of late, late August. He received a master's degree uh, in international relations from the London School of Economics and currently resides in the beautiful swamp of Washington, D.C. <laughs> Christopher, thank you for making time to talk to us this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I wanted to, before we go into any of the questions and the conversation about limited government and market-based solutions to climate change, I just wanted to see if maybe you could give us the spiel about the American Conservation Coalition, what you guys are doing, and why you got started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for, for having me. Really happy to be here. Um, and really kind of like you mentioned, environmental and climate issues for a long time have been really dominated by the left. They've been very one-sided. Um, and ACC was founded in 2017 to step into that space and to uh, bring conservatives to the table on these issues. Uh, and obviously the, the principles that underpin our approach to climate issues are um, economic growth, markets, innovation, um, all the things that, that conservatives like, but also classical liberals and, and libertarians. And so it's very much kind of providing a new way of looking at these issues um, and pushing back against uh, some of the like big government Green New Deal-esque approaches that have dominated this debate for so long. We have about 20,000 young people across the country growing very rapidly. Um, and really, we're the only ones doing this on our side of the aisle. And, and it's incredibly important because it is the number one issue for most people in our generation. And if we don't give them an alternative to the Green New Deal, then we'll end up with the Green New Deal. That is a very powerful uh, mission. I am extremely happy that you guys decided to do this. And I think it's much needed. So, okay. So I was going to just jump into some of the questions to talk about and basically what explore it, the whole goal in my mind of this show is going to be to explore what market-based and limited government solutions to climate change look like. Because a lot of people talk about that, but then when you get into the tactics, like what actually does that look like? So first and foremost, I just wanted to ask the big question, the elephant in the room question, which a lot of people get asked on the right when we talk about climate change is, do you believe, or at least maybe ACC generally believe that man-made climate change is a real phenomenon? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating because there should just be a, a one word answer to this to anyone that that is asked of it is, is yes. Um, obviously, it, it's real. Um, the last eight years have been the, the hottest uh, uh, recorded years um, in history. Uh, the science is, is really quite clear on the fact that global warming is happening um, and that we need to do something about it. The one thing I will say is that the science is also clear about the fact that um, the climate alarmists are also wrong. And it's like an interesting position because 
you have a, a lot of people on the left that say we have 12 years left to tackle climate change or billions of people are going to die. And that's just very extremist rhetoric that um, A, doesn't reflect the science, but B, also it doesn't inspire people to, to actually do something about it. it. It actually inspires fear and pessimism rather than hope and optimism. Yeah. Um, but conversely, like people that say that there's no issue whatsoever are clearly not watching the news, first of all, um, but also they're also misre misrepresenting the science. And, and so at, at the very basic level, climate change is real. Um, man is, is the primary cause of it. Um, there are many causes. Climate has always changed, but we are accelerating uh, climate change. And we need to do something about it because it is a serious problem, but it is not the end of the world. And the solutions that we approach and the rhetoric that we use for this should reflect that. I think you hit on a really good point that a lot of people really dismiss climate change because of the solutions are so out there and would have such harmful effects. All the, you know, the solutions in the public discourse really are more government control, more government involvement in, in little things or even outright depopulation or degrowth, which yep. would have really horrible effects, not only just on every, you know, individual's well-being, but on our planet as, as a whole. Like, it might even accelerate climate change, anecdotally. Yeah. Right? <laughs> in many cases. Government controls the means of production. We've, we know what that, we, what the results are of that, and that's more pollution and more damage to the environment. Yep. So how do you, when you're talking to people who say, you know, climate change isn't real, it's all a left, you know, a leftist plot, how do you talk to somebody who's like that? I know my parents very much in that boat of, well, it's all fake, it's all just fake news. How do you talk to them? Yeah, I'll say two things to that. The first is um, it's really important that the voices that to, do talk about this don't un unnecessarily politicize it. I think we've seen that from um, some folks within the scientific community, unfortunately, um, where it's kind of become like the, their politics have intertwined with their kind of scientific approach. That being said, ACC produced a documentary, I think it was about 18 months ago, with The Daily Caller, actually, where we went around the country and interviewed self-professed conservative climate scientists. Hmm. And these are people like Carrie Emanuel at MIT or Barry Bickmore at BYU in Utah. And, and these are people that have uh, studied the science, um, have come to the conclusion that it is not fake news, that it is not a Chinese hoax, and that we need to do something about it. But that doesn't mean abandoning their political principles or, or their worldview. And I think if we can get those kinds of people, and the reason that we produce a documentary, if we can get them in front of conservative audiences that might be skeptical of, kind of the mainstream science and they're hearing it from people who are quote unquote on their side, I think that's incredibly helpful. And so uh, encourage people to, to check that out. You can just go to YouTube and put daily caller uh, climate change documentary. Um, the second thing I'll say is for one of my biggest frustrations with the way that people talk about climate change, especially on the left is the, the abstract manner in which they approach this. They're talking about parts per million, about net zero by 2050, about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And most people have no direct connection to any of those terms. You, it's, it's invisible. You don't have like a personal understanding of what a carbon dioxide looks like. Um, so we need to start connecting this issue to the way it impacts your life. And so if you are a farmer in a rural district and you're seeing how erratic weather patterns are impacting your crop yield, huh, you can kind of bring that back to how climate is impacting that. If you're in Wisconsin, like Benji Backer, our, our founder, uh, he, he grew up there and, and he's like, I can't remember the last time I had a white Christmas. And, and a lot of people across the country like notice that. And yeah. you can be like, well, why? Because climate change is impacting like 
seasons and, and snow and all that kind of stuff. Similarly, if you're talking to people in Florida, pretty much a red state nowadays, sea level rise, they notice that. Yeah. Um, and so that you just got to be able to connect it to the issues that actually matter to people rather than talking about these like really vague, abstract ideas. That makes a lot of sense. It seems like a, a more effective strategy to um, to at least win over hearts and minds. One of the things that we talked about in the first episode of our show, uh, we, we had an epidemiologist, uh, Jacob Rich, on, and we talked about the politic, you know, the the politicization of vaccines. And it was almost a similar kind of a conversation. It was like, as soon as politics starts getting into the conversation, we're not talking about results or we're not actually talking about how it affects you. We're talking about red versus blue. And the last thing you want to do is politicize an issue as existential as vaccines or climate change in a way. Uh, because again, it's, it can be an existential crisis if it goes unaddressed for the next several decades. Uh, so that's interesting, well, po Chris. Politics, yeah. politics is always the, the, so, you know, the, the one size fits all solution, right? And to some degree, we, we do have things in this world that do need a one-size-fits-all solution, right? I don't kill each other. Yeah. But for, for vaccines, for climate change, there are many solutions to these. And that's kind of where I'd love to see this, this go from here. Okay, so uh, why don't we talk about solutions, Chris, if that's, if that's cool with you. So just where you guys are on your mind, like wh what can be done tactically uh, on a macro scale? So one of the questions that I have is... Um, First of all, we know at least global spending right now, I think, of fossil fuels is like $5.9 trillion. So, you know, that's an estimate that says the governments across the world spend almost $6 trillion subsidizing fossil fuels. So I'm sure a lot of people would agree that we should probably work to end those subsidies at the very minimum. But one of the questions that comes in is renewable energy and uh, whether government subsidies are needed for renewable energy to compete with fossil fuels and just kind of how renewable energy we can talk about nuclear, but I'm thinking more like wind and solar, how those kind of fit into the picture um, to drive a transition in the market. I mean, do you have any commentary on that just broadly? I mean, the, the first thing I'll say, and I appreciate you mentioning nuclear in there as well. Yeah. When we talk about the energy sources that are uh, going to help us tackle climate change, we talk about clean energy. Um, I think there is a little bit of an ideological uh, tribal approach that a lot of people take when they just talk about renewables mm -hmm. and they try to talk about like hundred percent renewables future uh, with while excluding things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and um, nuclear and all that kind of stuff. And so, so that, that's just a, a general point, but to, to the specific question about renewables like wind and solar um, I think it's really quite remarkable to see how um, the market is actually heading in the direction of just renewables um, you, you see that in like, for example, last year um, in the United States, like 80% of private investment in energy sources went to renewable and clean energy sources. Like we're getting to a point where, um, where the market is actually embracing uh, renewables, where the costs have come down to such an extent, partly because of subsidies, but also a lot because of innovation. Um, and they're becoming cost competitive in a lot of areas. I think the concern that I have when it comes to kind of a renewables only future, so 100% renewables, is that you actually you do a disservice to renewables themselves because right now, like the wind only shine, the wind only blows when the when the wind blows, and so you can only get energy that way. And similarly with solar pa panels, and um, we see that when the wind stops blowing or the sun sun stops shining, it's very expensive to have uh, a backup. And right now, often we go to fossil fuel backups. Yeah. But if you have nuclear plants as well that are base load, that are clean energy, then you actually can kind of help balance the grid to the extent that renewables uh, maintain their cost competitiveness. And so I think we are in a position where more and more 
renewables are kind of just being driven by the market rather than by subsidies. Um, and then a really cool example of that actually is Texas. Um, Texas, if it were a country, would be the fifth largest producer of wind energy in the world. As you know, Texas has a deregulated competitive electricity market. Yep. And data shows that Texas is decarbonizing faster on a per unit of GDP rate than California. Why? Because competition and innovation uh, drives this kind of stuff. And they have much lower electricity prices. And so we're really kind of taking this market-based approach to uh, energy um, policy is, is really important, both from a kind of clean energy perspective, but also from a cost perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, there was a study I saw, it said that if you have an actual competitive free market, like an, a free energy market, a real competitive market, the price, you see decarbonization at like 66% and price drops up to almost 50%. So you're seeing like a massive improvement in not only clean energy, but also cost for the consumer. It seems like a win-win for everybody. Um, you know, even if fossil fuels may be part of the mix, the, and the overall, it, it's moving in the right direction. Right. Uh, one of the things you mentioned about nuclear, I actually wanted to talk about nuclear broadly, because this is one of those things where we're, you know, we consider ourselves like what true liberals or classical liberals. And that kind of falls in a little bit more on the libertarian leaning tradition than maybe the conservative tradition. But one of the things that we hear in our circles all the time mm -hmm. is nuclear power requires too much government intervention. Like it requires a lot of subsidies or government involvement. And, uh, you know, I think there's trade-offs. So as liberals, we're not, reflexively against any government action by any means like you might find with like an ANCAP or something like that. But I'm curious as to how you feel like we could have, say, a limited government solution to, to nuclear. Are there any dynamics or states or countries or that have like deregulated nuclear or approached that conversation in a way that doesn't require a lot of government action or government investment? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I would actually encourage people to check out what Matt Ridley um, the, the British scientist and Lord has, has written about this stuff. Um, but essentially what happened in kind of the 60s and 70s when we were truly entering the atomic age in the U.S. and we, we realized kind of the abundant, clean, affordable energy that nuclear provided. And so we were building nuclear plants left, right and center across the country, yeah. um, like literally building dozens of them. Um, and that's when the environmental movement stepped in and became very skeptical of nuclear plants. There's some shady ties there to the fossil fuel industry in terms of like funding and, and all that kind of stuff for these environmental groups. Um, but the, the real crux of it is that they start going to politicians and saying like nuclear is dangerous. Obviously, like Chernobyl didn't help. And then later right. on, Fukushima and, and Three Mile Island. But they but they use this kind of these fear tactics to get politicians to essentially um, regulate nuclear out of existence. And if you look at people like Bill McKibben and others and, and things that they've said about this, like that was quite explicitly their strategy. Like they wanted to make nuclear non-competitive with other energy sources in their mind, obviously ideally renewables, by getting the government to stack the deck against nuclear. And so what we ended up with was something called a, a nuclear regulatory commission, which is the, the federal body in charge of regulating nuclear power. Um, that has this absolutely labyrinthine uh, like maze of red tape for nuclear plants. Um, in fact, in the last three decades, we've only built one new nuclear plant because of it. Um, they don't even have currently a regulatory process for next generation nuclear plants to be approved. 
uh, and built, it, it's, it's, it's just a complete mess. And, and what we can actually do in a limited government way is to assess these regulations, see which ones are necessary for actual public health reasons and which ones don't reflect the science and are actually politically motivated and change the, the regulatory process of, uh, for building nuclear plants. And you, you can actually do it in a way where instead of it taking 15 years and billions of dollars over budget to build a nuclear plant, you can do what, for example, the UAE has done, which is building like four or five nuclear plants in the last six or seven years. Like it is possible that you need to create a regulatory environment and the government needs to get out of the way to allow that innovation and construction to happen. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Jonathan, you want to take the next one? <clears throat> yeah, I well, I kind of want to talk. Like, I was going to make a quick point about kind of nuclear power. I you wonder how much the industry could have advanced had government gotten out of the way 20, 30 years ago. Because yeah. right now we're 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 hearing about thorium reactors. We're hearing about these you know these these new technologies in the nuclear space where we can recycle nuclear uh, uh, waste now. We can. There's all these different things that we could have been doing that could have been advanced and moving along that would have made nuclear to where you know you can't. It's 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 impossible to have a meltdown. There's all of these technologies. There's all of these um, uh, you know that the market would have invested in this technology a lot more money, a lot more time, a lot more effort had government gotten out of the way 20, 30 years ago and allowed these technologies to be developed. You know, we, you know, the, the money is going to always follow where the profit is. Right. And if we had made it profitable for nuclear power to, to be invested in, we would have we would have seen a massive leap forward. And I, I think that we would have we would have we would have had a far, far, a far easier time in, in getting um, uh, and in building public trust in nuclear power, because that's another aspect of nuclear power that really, you know, we didn't really touch on yet is that a lot of people are scared of nuclear power. They're afraid of a meltdown. They're afraid of the nuclear waste. But when you actually look at things, one, you can recycle nuclear waste. Two, nuclear waste is actually quite, uh, it's not, you know, it's not something you want to stand next to, but you can put it in a container and it can stay in that container for 500 years and it's fine. You're going to be okay. It's, it's, it can be dealt with. Um, and then also coal puts out more radioactive waste than uh, nuclear power plants do. And that's, that's something that I think most people don't understand is it, you have to ask the question, okay, when you, when you get rid of nuclear power, what are you going to replace it with? And guess what? All of the alternatives are worse. Right. Uh, from an environmental perspective, from a health perspective, from basically any perspective you look at it, all the alternatives to nuclear power, especially, you know, unless you're going with with, uh, you know, uh, wind or solar, they're always going to have really negative, negative effects. Right. And I mean, if you live in, in a place like Colorado, the background radiation from the mountains there is is higher than you'll find at any nuclear plant. And so people that are literally just living in Colorado are exposed to more radioactivity than workers at a nuclear plant. That's a hell of an anecdote right there. I tell yeah. you what. And, and, and the really frustrating thing, like to your question about how governments are actually often the obstacle to building out nuclear power and, and have been, is you see like, for example, that the, that the uh, New York state shut down the nuclear plant that was outside New York city that supplied a quarter of the, of the city's electricity, obviously all clean, and they closed that for very political reasons. Um, and overnight, emissions shot up by like 30% in mm. the state. Because Sounds like what just happened in Germany. Same right, similarly in Germany. Like you're shutting down nuclear plants, you replace that with fossil fuels because we don't have enough wind and solar yet to be able to do that. And so it's just, it's just a really frustrating situation because we genuinely could have, like, like France, basically an entirely decarbonized electricity grid 
um, because of nuclear. And it was a political choice not to do that. Mm. And we are, we are kind of, yeah, feeling we're the facing conflict. the repercussions decades later and digging ourselves out of a hole. That's yeah. Significant to think about what, what okay. do you view? What's your opinion on um, like carbon tax or cap and trade? What are, what's your view on, on those ways to control pollution? Uh, you know, does the, are those good, bad? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, it's a tricky situation because you have to be able to differentiate between kind of the elegance of an economic solution and the reality of politics. Um, and, and I think like there's economically a lot to be said for some kind of like cap and trade or carbon tax system. Um, but that only exists really kind of within an abstract, perfect economic world. And we just see that the politics are, are completely not there for, for carbon tax or for a cap and trade system. Um, and honestly, often I don't really trust the government to be able to design it in a way that actually would be effective. Like if you look at um, the European Union's cap and trade system, they had all kinds of exemptions for their preferred industries. Um, and so obviously mm -hmm. that completely failed. And even if you look at the waxman Markey legislation, which would have been like a cap and trade bill that um, Obama had uh, been pushing at the beginning of his presidency, um, we actually see that the emissions reductions that we've achieved since 2009 are higher than waxman Markey tried to achieve in a policy that didn't pass, right? And so it's just like a, a bizarre world where I understand carbon tax advocates and, and I understand kind of their, their adherence to this economic elegance, but I think we need to just be realistic about what solutions work and which ones are politically feasible and focus on those because if you want to be like a Green New Deal advocate and Green New Deal or bust, similarly like carbon tax or bust, then you're yeah. not going to find any solutions that actually work somewhere um, in the middle. So it's just, it, that's kind of my take on the carbon tax stuff. Oh, that's actually very interesting. Cause again, you're saying that the government, the proposed government solution, even the, you know, the optimistic and rosy projections of what that was about 10, 15 years ago now were achieved via market factors without the government passing the bill. So that actually leads me to my next question, which is related to urgency. There's all this urgency and you kind of touched on this at the beginning that, uh, you know, maybe it's not as big of a crisis as a lot of people on the left want to think. I mean, everyone's saying like if the world's going to end in four years and then four years passes and then they have to delete the old tweets and post it again, right? You've seen that. But a lot of people, and I think this is a legitimate criticism because a lot of people don't have the same faith in the market that say maybe people on the, on the right might or people that understand what market factors do. They say that free the free market approach or you say a market-based approach lacks the urgency that we need and it's going to take too long. Um, right. Do you feel that? Like, what is your thoughts? How do you address that, that uh, concern? So I think they point to a truth, which is that we are not going fast enough. Mm -hmm. Now, what they fail to recognize is that, for example, right now in the U.S., the single biggest obstacle to building out clean energy infrastructure and tackling climate change is the government red tape that is not allowing us to build anything. And so like we have these conversations about so-called permitting reform, like on average, it takes nearly six years just to permit a clean energy project or an energy project in general yeah. costs like $5 million on average in terms of like compliance costs and lawyers and all that kind of stuff. And like if you're talking about a timeline of like trying to tackle climate change within the next 12 years, then how are we having government regulation make it take six years, sometimes 10, sometimes 15 years to build the very infrastructure that we need? 
Right. And so I understand kind of the, the frustration that we're not moving fast enough. And people tend to put that like at, at the market's feet. But I think a lot of it has to do with the way that the government has set us up for failure with the red tape that they've uh, put into place, often at the request of environmentalists. Um, and it's just very frustrating um, because when you look at like the Waxman Markey example, that was an ex- that was a really good example of how the market actually went faster than the the proposed government policy that failed. Um, and that's because the market determined that natural gas was better than coal, and in the process, like is reducing emissions faster than any other country. And so I think we need to look at policies that unleash more of that rather than leaning more into the government stuff that is proven to not really actually work out. There's, there's, you know, talk about degrowth and we have to, we have to, you know, our, our, um, our consumption needs to go way down for us to fix the problem. But when we look at a lot of country, a lot of these countries, we've seen that they still have their growth, but their carbon emissions are going down in, in a lot of Western countries. Why is that? Is that, can you kind of explain the mechanism on what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, speaking of elegant economic like models and graphs, there's a, there's a really cool concept out there called the environmental Kuznets curve. And it's basically, it goes like this, and it shows that as an economy grows, initially, obviously, environmental degradation also goes up, whether that's pollution, emissions, plastic use, whatever it is, it goes up. But then you reach a level of prosperity in in an economy where actually the more you continue growing the economy, the more the pollution or environmental degradation goes down. Now, there's a few reasons why that happens. One is um, just kind of very simply psychologically, if you are a developing economy and you are still uh, a mother that's worried about putting uh, a meal on, on your table for your kids at night or a roof over your head, then your primary concern is surviving, not like clean energy or protecting the environment. You're just going right. to take that survival at, at all costs. And that's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Right. That if you get to a point where you are um, like a medium or a high income com- country and all of a sudden you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from and you start having disposable income to think about other things, then you start thinking about, oh, I like this, this stove that I'm using is producing a lot of pollution inside and it's bad for me and my kids. And so maybe I should consider upgrading or, or getting something else. Um, or you like want to take your kids out to a national park. And, and visit that and you are willing to spend money on the conservation projects happening there. And so there's just, there just comes a point where the concern for environmental issues in the economy starts trumping the concern for basic survival. And then you have more resources flowing to that. You have nonprofit groups that get started. You have community groups that build community gardens or a park or an organic farm or whatever it might be. You just start having that because of the basic fact that people are no longer concerned with survival, they're concerned with other things that are higher on kind of the hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. The second makes, reason- Makes a lot of sense, sorry. Yeah, and, and the second reason is when an economy grows, you have more resources that go to innovation. Um, we know that capitalism rewards efficiency. If you can build a product with fewer material inputs, that's gonna save you money. And so you have an incentive within capitalism to do that. Um, and, and innovation that happens, whether it's um, kind of wind and solar or like your iPhone, um, which if you think about it, like I have my phone right here, 
this is a calculator and a camera and a notepad and a computer and a GPS and an alarm clock and everything in one little tiny box. And if you think of all the resources that you were required to uh, build all those individual things, that's a lot. If you can yeah. do it in one little pro like product like this, then you're saving a lot of resources. And so ultimately capitalism incentivizes efficiency and innovation allows you to have continually more efficient and cleaner products uh, with a with a lower environmental footprint. Um, and so we see that, for example, with going from coal to natural gas. Yeah. Like natural gas is 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 cleaner. It's better for public health. Um, it it's burns more easily. It's easier to transport. All these factors happen because we were at a point where we could do hydraulic fracking, and we had the technology and the innovation to be able to do that. And sorry, it's kind of like a, a long explanation here, but at the end of the day, the environmental Kuznets curve allows an economy to, to grow. And then once it reaches that point, it has the innovation and the ability to start using fewer and fewer resources for continued economic growth. And that is the story that no one is talking about when it comes to climate and environmental issues. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's almost like you take Maslow's hierarchies of needs, you just paste it on a society, and it actually explains a lot of these dynamics when you think about it. So it's an interesting analogy to make. Um, one of the things that, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, at least on um, on some of that ar that argument, this is something I hear a lot, and I personally have not created a compelling narrative myself on how to address it. So I'm curious as to whether or not you have thought about this issue. A lot of people say that okay, the U.S. and Western countries are decarbonizing while growing. But mainly that's due to the fact that we're exporting our manufacturing and a lot of our, say, dirtier industries to other countries like China and India or whatever. Um, and you see that. I mean, that's a challenge I think that we all are very aware of. Like, yeah, sure, the United States might be moving in the right place from a, a decarbonization perspective. But then when you look at countries like China, I mean, they're, they're, they're still increasing those emissions. Have you, have do you have a thought on, on that narrative, like how you address that narrative or – whether do you think you think if we give China enough time, they'll be decarbonizing as well? I mean, I assume that's kind of the idea here, but yeah. do you have any thoughts on it? So, so three main points. The first one I would say is that if you look at uh, a fair few countries in the West that um, are decarbonizing while still growing their economy, um, you actually look at uh, the their manufacturing output in real terms has also gone up. Okay. And so like there's, there's some element of obviously offshoring emissions that that always happens. Um, but it's not like we've like completely gotten rid of any industry that would be responsible for our emissions. And that's the only reason that we're decarbonizing. And there's a lot of data that shows that um, like our own like industrial capacities and manufacturing facilities and all that are also getting cleaner and better. Um, so that's like just, just one initial point. Um, the second point is that I think it's just we need to be careful about pitting economic growth versus environmental protection um, or climate progress. I think a lot of times you have it's just kind of like a neo-colonial mindset where it's like, oh, climate change is so important that we can't let African countries or Asian countries use coal um, because we need to tackle climate change. But we use coal when we were developing and industrializing. We got rich because we were using fossil fuels. Why would we rob all these poor people in other parts of the world that haven't been on that same trajectory yet from that opportunity to reach a standard of living that we have? Um, and so it's just important that we um, frame it not as like it's one or the other, but that we can we can do both. Um, 
And, and the yeah. third thing I mentioned is really the way the, the benefit of we don't have to wait another 150 years till all these other countries are industrialized and then start like going down on the environmental Kuznets curve is because a lot of countries in the West have gotten to the point where they built these innovations and they built these products that can then be used elsewhere. And you have that blueprint for doing that. So like China or India or Africa are not starting from square one. Like they can benefit from the innovation that we've come up with and we can share that with them, export that to them. And I think the only way that we can really do that is by creating a, a com globally competitive marketplace for these things. And, and what I mean by that is if you want to have China or India decarbonize, you're not going to do that by like going to a UN climate conference every year and like yeah. wagging your finger at them and telling them like you have to choose between economic growth and climate progress. You do that by creating uh, the economic conditions where actually building that nuclear plant or building that solar farm is better than opening that coal plant and, and makes more economic sense. And you do see some of that. You have China is, is the largest producer of, of solar panels, of wind turbines. They're yeah. uh, building the most nuclear plants in the world. They dominate EV supply chains. Um, there's a reason why they're doing that. It's because they see that that's the future and they want to be kind of the Saudi Arabia of the clean energy future. Yeah, And I think America and the West need to create a, a, a regulatory structure and an economic structure where we can actually do that as well and where we can start investing in a lot more of these technologies um, and allowing the market to do what it does best is to accelerate innovation so that we can then export that and bring that to India and China and, and other countries. And I think that's really the only way that you globally address climate change is by, like I, I, I call it a clean energy arms race. Um, you want them to feel super personally bought in on this future and for the economics to make sense because if the economics don't make sense it's never going to happen makes yeah, sense think think about if we had just if we had reduced nuclear you know the cost of nuclear power by 20 30 40 percent uh imagine what that would do to a, a, a you know a developing nation imagine how much easier it would be for them to just plug that technology in on in their market and, and go well, I mean, it's We've, the same concept too. Is we were they're like they're skipping. We in the United States had to build wires for you know uh, phone lines for a long time. We, they, in countries in Africa, are skipping straight to wireless. It's the same concept with they skip being able to skip straight to renewables rather than having to go through all that learning that that the West did in the 1800s and 1900s. Sorry to cut you off, Jonathan. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so we've talked about, you know, the left likes to say there's in, in this many years, there's going to be a red line that if we cross, we're done. We can't, you know, we can't cross this line. And obviously that line keeps changing and moving. But is there a line? Is there a, is there a line in the future? Can you give us, do you have a sense of where that line could possibly be? What, what's your thoughts on that, on just on that whole discussion? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's you're dealing with science and very complex um, ecological fact, uh, like, issues and so it's not like there's like a specific date at some point in the future where we have to like have this figured out by um i do think like there's a, a general um goal within the scientific community that reflects the best available science which is that generally we should be net zero by around 2050 if that's 2051 or 2052 versus 2048 like obviously there's like wiggle room there um so that's kind of there's like a ballpark that we should be aiming for based on like modeling and, and data and whatnot. Um, but I think that, that the left tries to co-opt those dates and frankly often influence and change them 
to pursue a like a particular political agenda. So you had like the Greens and Labour in the UK, or you had like the AOCs in the US. They're like, actually, no, we want to be 100% clean by 2030 mm -hmm. or 20. Like, and it, it just becomes a political game where you're constantly moving the goalposts because that b benefits your pr like particular political point of view. Um, and so that's why we tend not to really uh, engage in the targets game because you're always going to be outcompeted by someone who has a more amb ambitious target um, because they can just say it, right? Like they, there's, there's yeah. no cost to them saying we're going to do it by 2030 because right. well, that's, yeah. that's politics, that's rhetoric. Um, yeah. And so we prefer to just look at the solutions, look at the ways that we can actually get to these outcomes. And the outcome is tackling climate change, having a, a clean energy future that is also abundant and affordable. Like that's an outcome that is much more inspiring to people and like much more tangible than just saying net zero by X date. Got it. I, I also think that if, you know, we have, there's a danger of investing in the wrong technology, right? In a few years, there may be a new technology that comes out and goes, okay, this is a better, this is a better, far faster, more efficient system. Um, so we have to be careful about not just throwing all our eggs into one, into solar or into wind. We have to, we have to make sure that we're not, we have diversity in our diversity in our development in our in, in in our energy system because we we don't know what's on the horizon we don't know what's going to be invented in the next right. five ten yeah, fifteen years right uh, uh, scaling up nuclear power or you know major breakthroughs in the nuclear power game could we could beat AOC's expectations if we just let the market work you know much before right if there's one thing we can learn from history is that markets are going to make far better long term decisions than than government right okay and, so. Yeah, Chris. <clears throat> the last thing I'll say on that is I do think very much that allowing kind of having this all of the above approach and allowing for competition and for the market to do what it does best is really important. I do think there are uh, particular instances where the government does have a role in helping um, kickstart some of the like research, like basic scientific research and, and innovation that needs to happen for um, things that are like not reflected by the market yet. So like one, one example is uh, fusion energy, like fusion right now, there is like no clear market demand for it because it's still like however many years away. And you do still see a lot of private sector investment in it, actually like a ton, which is, which is very impressive because they realize that if they crack this, they've like won the game essentially. Right. Um, but there is still like an element of like basic research, whether it's like fusion or nuclear energy back in the like forties and fifties that the government can help when it's like pre-market. But then the point is that once it becomes something that is um, competitive and commercial, then we should take a step back and allow it to compete and not pick those winners and losers. Yep. Love that message. Absolutely uh, buy into that. Um, and so we're, we're kind of coming towards the end of the show here. And I, I wanted to see, maybe give some of our audience some specific stories to look up or anecdotes. One of the one of the questions that I had on my list was, you know, we talked about nuclear, we talked about deregulation generally, but do you have any stories or policies that have showed to work or say, uh, you know, uh, different types of solutions that have been presented that you've seen work? Uh, like if we're talking about tactics, like tactically, what do you think people in our audience should advocate for locally or look for projects to support? I mean, do anything, any things pop up in your uh, mind there? <clears throat> well, I'd say there's, there's two, one, which was government led through policy and one, which is just kind of like a, a general organic bottom up 
uh, story. I'll start with with the the latter one. Um, most people, like you'll probably know Eleanor Ostrom. Um, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. Um, and she uh, was thinking a lot about the tragedy of the commons and how do we um, kind of solve that problem of everyone using resources at the same time and just depleting it. And there's no incentive for them to really take care of that. Um, and often like we're presented with like, a, okay, well then the government will come in and regulate and like apportion resources and say, you can do this or you can do that. And um, often that's not very effective because a, the government has its own incentives. And so they will give it to whoever they're friends with or whatever their particular political incentive is at that, at that moment. And B, they often lack the local knowledge. And so Eleanor Austin, what she did was she went to communities around the world to see how they were dealing with these kinds of problems. And she actually found that um, in the absence of government policy, local communities tend to come up with solutions that are really innovative, that actually are, are voluntary and, and just come from the, the bottom up. And so like a really uh, good example that she would often bring up is in Switzerland, you had this problem with grazing where you had just like these alpine fields and like different farmers and ranchers would have their cattle go and graze. And they realized that if all the cattle were grazing all the time, then quickly the land is depleted and that benefits no one. Right. Because at the end of the day, like even if it's for free or whatever, if three years from now that field is completely depleted and you can't have your cattle graze on it anymore, that's that's bad for you. Um, and so they came up with an agreement where they had kind of like a rotational grazing schedule that the ranchers agreed upon themselves without any like enforcement mechanism from the government. But at the community level where they would have like different farmers would have different like cattle on different days grazing different parts of the field. And they were rotated in a way where the field would then have time to heal and recover while the cattle are somewhere else. And this just happened completely organically. Um, and and that's, there's tons of, tons of stories like that in, in Switzerland, in, in Turkey with fishing stocks, with, like all over the world, you find communities coming up with really cool solutions where they self-enforce um, through social pressure and through like the right incentives in the absence of government. So that's, that's a really cool story on that. Um, one in, one like instance of where government policy actually was really successful is um, in Iceland, where they had a big problem that they noticed with overfishing and fishing stocks were being depleted. Uh, and they were trying to find a solution to this. At one point, they said, okay, we're going to regulate what days people fish on. And so the fishers would just, instead of being on the water for, say, eight hours, they would be on the water for 12 hours to make up for the days that they couldn't fish. And, and so they just like kept uh, like going around the regulations and these, these rules that the government was creating that, that weren't working um, until an economist um, who's actually like a, a free market economist came up with uh, the idea of so-called individual tradable quotas. And so they uh, kind of took a scientific approach to what the fishing stocks were, what was a sustainable catch each year. And then they had um, individual quotas for fishermen to be like, okay, you're allowed to fish this many fish this year, uh, but you can trade it. And so if for, for some reason you think that each fish is worth $1 and you think that each fish is worth $2, you can pay the other fisher to take some of their quota and you kind of have this like law of supply and demand and the market working it out themselves. Um, and they saw like, um, huge rebound of fishing populations, 
which actually helped in the long run because it allowed them to increase the quotas to uh, stay within the sustainability. And so it worked out economically, it worked out environmentally, and uh, it kept the fishers happy. So I think that's just like a really cool of government uh, policy that actually understood how incentives work and how to use the market for a good environmental outcome. Right. Well, it, it creates the incentive of private property, right? They own that quota. They own that, yeah. that, 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 uh, that piece of, of, of not land, but actual, actual a piece of property and gives them um, a personal interest in it. And so that I think is where that, you know, we, we see that in, in life. If public property, the tragedy of the commons, it happens in just about every aspect. We don't take care of it as well as we take our care of our own property. Yeah. yeah. Uh, having a stake in the game is very important. Okay. Uh, before I close this out, Jonathan, do you have any other questions you wanted to ask? No, I, thank you, Chris, for coming on. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Chris. Uh, thank you for not only taking time to talk to us today, but also the work that you guys do with ACC. I think it's extremely important work. And uh, it's as somebody who's also fellow millennial, it's amazing to see an organization, millennial run, focused on trying to convince all the boomers on the right to buy into these values or at least understand that this is an issue. So uh, I don't know if you have anything you want to plug, but I'll give you the floor. Well, I was going to say, I think you're technically Gen Z. So oh, I'm, there you go. <laughs> oh, my. Even more so. Even um, better. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, if people want to learn more, there's a few ways for them to do that. Um, one is we created a, a Market Environmentalism Academy, which is, uh, I think it's marketacademy.eco, uh, where people can, like, for free take courses on everything from the role of hunters and fishers in conservation to um, nuclear energy to um, carbon capture and storage like there's just so many different topics there with like cool videos and readings and quizzes and that kind of stuff so people can check that out if they want to learn more about specific topics and we have like 20 courses um, and then the second thing is we have a kind of climate framework that we call the climate commitment and you can go to the climatecommitment.com which is uh, six big ideas to tackle climate change with like specific policy ideas and everything underneath that um, and very much rooted in innovation markets, um, like energy, like abundance. Uh, and so if people want to learn more about kind of this approach to climate change and, and like want to support it, there's ways to do that. And so you can just head to the, the climate Awesome. And website for ACC is acc.eco, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. awesome stuff. Okay. Chris, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us as well. Um, we will see you guys on the next episode, uh, but thank you for everything. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day, everybody.